Welcome to the SoulWorks Podcast, a place where we explore self-care strategies that lead us to our well-being and highest self. I'm your host, Ade Chakol. Hi, beautiful souls. I hope you're all doing great, um, safe at home. Um, I'm here today to discuss about um, the issue we're seeing with uh, domestic violence really increasing now due to, you know, all of us being at home. And uh, for some people, this has become a big issue, unfortunately. And, you know, for many people, when they're supposed to be staying home to be safe, it's actually quite the opposite for them right now because they're being isolated with their abusers. And I just find that extremely unfortunate and disturbing. Um, so that is why I'm here today uh, with Paula Karskilo. Uh, we're going to be talking about domestic violence and Paula is a recognized author and self-mastery coach with a passion for supporting individuals interested in reaching their full potential and not just dreaming about it. She takes a sweet, tough love approach for her clients and integrates um, yoga therapy, meditation, pranic energy healing, and integrative nutrition into each of her sessions. Her self-published books include Escaping the Boy, My Life with a Psychopath, and Unashamed Voices, True Stories Written by Survivors of Domestic Violence, Rape, Fraud, Exposing Psychopaths in Our Midst. So um, I really hope you will listen to this episode and also share it with people you think um, might be benefiting from it. So without further ado, here's Paula. All right. Hi, Paula. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you um, for inviting me. <laughs> I, I know it was a, such a short notice for this episode, but before we jump into um, our discussion for today, Tell me, what's your morning morning routine like? My morning routine. <laughs> so the first thing I do is I make my bed. <laughs> and then I do a morning energy clearing protocol. So I sweep my aura, cut my cords, and then just check in with my higher self and ask, you know, what is it that I need to know to move me forward, you know, for the rest of the day. And so it's, it's kind of like a, just a way to check in with myself. It's kind of like a silent meditation that I do. And it only takes about 10, 15 minutes. And then I have my coffee, have my breakfast, and right now, I just walk to the living room, to my desk, <laughs> and start my day. Normally, I would, oh. you know, head out the door and drive into work. But that's not happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that's just so interesting how to hear about how different people kind of set themselves up for, you know, a great day ahead. And I think energy clearing is an amazing way to start that day. So do you meditate at all in the morning? I meditate a little bit. Um, I, I have a mantra that I, that I recite a few times. And I'll burn some incense. And I, have, I listen to an OM track, just the chanting of OM. And it's very calming, soothing, and it grounds me. And then I'm ready to get started that's beautiful that's really awesome so tell us Paula just a little bit about you your background can you dive into that about so you are um, definitely a health coach but you're also a yoga therapist 
and um, just tell us like how that all unfolded in your life. And I know you've done a lot of work in uh, domestic violence. So can you tell us some, some things about that? Sure. Yes. So yes, I am a certified uh, health, um, health coach, and I'm also a certified yoga therapist. I stumbled literally into a yoga studio about 10 years ago. I had some issues with my knee. I didn't want to have surgery. And within three days, three classes, I was hooked. And within three months of practicing yoga, I recognized that I had been pushing away some unresolved trauma. (laughs) And, you know, no one wants to admit that they were a victim of anything. I grew up being, you know, as a very strong-minded person. I like to think that I was smart. And I also like to think that no one could hurt me or impact me, especially emotionally. But after being on the yoga mat for about three months, practicing, I would say about five days a week, actually going into the studio, things started happening to me. I started, you know, this whole self-reflection and self-realization and things coming up and me having to face myself. And I recognize, wow, okay. Just because I survived what happened doesn't mean I actually allowed it to be released from myself. So when I was 18, I was in a very, I was, I was in a very abusive relationship, um, physically abusive. And it only lasted about eight months. But there was a lot of damage done that I didn't recognize at the time. And it took me a couple decades, like I said, before I actually recognized what happened. And so from there, I started writing a lot. Purging myself of just things that I hadn't really wanted to face about myself. And, and I had a coworker at the time who encouraged me to you know, publish a book about my story. And so what I did was I started a blog (laughs) and I compiled the posts that I wrote on that blog into a book. And that's really when I, again, I feel like I stumbled into this area of serving people, helping people, specifically women of who were victims of intimate partner abuse, domestic violence, uh, on all levels, not just physical, but emotional, spiritual, financial. And I really just dived, dove headfirst into wanting to you know, help people. And because the yoga, the meditation, the practices that I was doing was really helping me, the writing, I was just like, I really want to help people, you know, come out of this and not just survive, but thrive. And honestly, I didn't know what the heck I was doing when I started doing this uh, about eight years ago. But one of the, I've met a lot of amazing people I've had some missteps along the way when, you know, interacting with people and trying to help people. That's why I went back to school, got a master's degree in yoga therapy, earned a certificate in health coaching, integrative nutrition health coaching, even studied meditation specifically. My background is in adult education, and I, even though every time I would take the Myers-Briggs test, it would say, oh, you should be a teacher. I always poo-pooed that. I'm just like, I can't be a teacher. And now I'm a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so that's, 
it, that's kind of what led me to being an advocate for victims, survivors of intimate partner abuse, what mm. most people refer to as domestic violence. Mm. Yeah. So you brushed up a little bit on like what t- types of abuse there are. So can you kind of dig deeper into like, well, first of all, what is yeah. the definition of, you know, uh, abuse? And it comes into many different ways. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So what I will do, because I love this organization, is I'm just going to give you the definition of domestic violence as defined by the National National Domestic Violence Hotline here in the United States. Okay? Okay. So domestic violence, as I mentioned, also often referred to as intimate partner violence, is a pattern of behaviors um, used by a partner um, to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. That is the definition of domestic violence. So a pattern of behavior can be physical abuse, right? It can be financial abuse, withholding finances. It can be emotional abuse. Regardless of what type of abuse it is, it's it's a pattern of behavior intended to control, to control the victim. So... It can be anything that that causes physical harm, causes the victim to be fearful, prevents the victim from doing something that they want to do. Um, it could be forcing even a even a um, a spouse into having sex. A lot of people say, "Oh well, it's impossible if you're married to rape your spouse." No, no. It's not impossible. It happens every day. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. The, that's the basic definition of, of domestic violence as we understand it today. So today, you know, basically we don't have control over many things, you know, because of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. So for those people who thrive out of control and they, they're faced with so much uncertainty, I can see how they could become aggravated. And if they're already abusing their partners, how that can get really bad. Yes. So the measures that are in place right now, the quarantine measures, the social distancing measures, all the fear-based measures that have been inflated by the media serve to really validate and justify abuser and abuser's control tactics. So for example, you know, just the whole recommendation that you only leave your home for necessities, right? Well, an abuser can use that now to justify locking their victim inside their home. And people would say, well, how can someone get locked inside their home? Well, unfortunately, abusers take advantage of today's technology. So take, for example, the smart home technology that we have. You know, we have the ability now to lock and unlock our front door with our cell phones. An app on our cell phones can lock or unlock our front door. An app on our cell phones can adjust the temperature in a home. An app on our cell phones can turn off and on lights in a home. And then... Think about a lot of families who have, you know, family cellular plans, right? I mean, these are conveniences and ways to save financially for most families, but abusers take advantage of it. So say you have a cell phone, um, 
uh, a family plan and you have three phones on your family plan. Well, an abuser can take advantage of that and be able to monitor your phone, put like one of those, um, if it's an iPhone, they have direct access to wherever that phone goes. So if your partner says, stay home, don't go anywhere, and you leave, they're going to find out that you've left just by monitoring the, I don't want to say any names, but you know, the find your phone, find my phone um, capabilities, right? So if a victim has already, you know, experienced the wrath of leaving when their abuser says not to leave, they're definitely not going to leave or they're going to be more compliant, especially now during the uh, quarantine period, because not only is it the wrath of their abuser, but I mean, it's potentially like the wrath of all society, right? Like, why are you leaving your home? Why are you going to the store? Is that a necessity? You know, so, so now a, a victim has even more reason to fear, you know, leaving their home, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's compounded, all of the reasons to stay home and be controlled have been compounded, not to be free. All of the all of the reasons and restrictions and limitations to their freedom have just been compounded by this whole quarantine requ- requirement. Yeah, and and they're staying home with their abuser now. At least before, probably their abuser might be. Uh, you know. Yeah. So yes, that's oh. another thing. So there's no way to get away for even like if you if you have a job, right? Um, that's if if you're a victim of domestic violence, you know, and you had a job, and now you have if you still have that job, but you have to telework, mm. and you're teleworking from home with your abuser who also has a job and they're required to telework. Oh my goodness, you can't escape. There's no physical, emotional, mental way for you to escape their influence and um, just the energy, Uh, you know, people, just the energy around that uh, an abusive relationship creates for the victim. And it's not just the direct victim, but it's anyone that is, um, that's in the care of the victim, right? So the children, children pick up on the energy. They may not know exactly what's happening, but I guarantee during this quarantine, more and more children are witnessing and actually seeing the violence, hearing Mm. the abuse, right? Directly seeing what their parent has been experiencing with um, as a result of the other parents' abuse and control. And so it's impacting the entire family directly 24-7. No one can escape. Kids can't even go outside, right? Because I know, like, you know, you think about it when you're a kid and say your parents didn't get along, they fought, you could always escape. You could always go outside. You could always run to the basement or you could – you know, you could hide away somewhere, you know, you didn't have to be there to witness it. But the way things are set up now with this quarantine, there's no escape for anybody. And so that's impacting people's mental, um, mental, emotional states more than they already were. They're co- it's compromising, it's compromising people's resiliency um, and their ability to find any type of peace because a victim, if, if they, like I said, they could at least escape to a job. They could take a walk around the block. They could go for a drive. Um, you know, depending on how restrictive their abuser was mm-hmm. and what their abuser is doing. I mean, right now, most abusers, you know, they can't go anywhere either, right? Some right. some still have are essential workers and they're going into in, into work. But and, and and then there's the you know the whole issue of many detention centers releasing least harmful to to communities. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know for certain, but I guarantee most people who have been slapped with a domestic violence case were probably some of the first ones to leave the jail. That is very scary. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, yeah, children would be facing abuse right now, you know, if their parents aren't in it. And I can just imagine how those kids would be affected. I'm sure that, you know, what are the things that could probably affect the kids? I would say maybe they would have PTSD or might even fall into depression and oh absolutely anxiety absolutely. yeah yes. so you know and probably even are, violence right like we're they're going to be thinking that that's normal if they're seeing that at home right now they're not going to school and they're seeing yeah. their yeah. you know parents There's in, so in that state so to to the impact that it has on children first and foremost a child wants to be happy and they want their parents to be happy. When a child's parent, one, both are unhappy, it directly impacts that child. So when they become witness to the behavior, like you said, they start to question the reality of their whole family dynamic. Like, is this normal for a husband and wife to behave this way? Is this normal for my parents to talk to each other this way? You know, and and it really does depend also on the age of the child, the child's ability to self-soothe, right? Mm -hmm. And so many other factors, personal, personal and individual to that child. I mean... I grew up in a household with, there are four of us, and we each are very different people, and we each respond to, react to situations in a different way. So it really, even though we grew up in the same environment, right? So it's hard to say exactly how it's going to impact the child, but it's it's definitely going to have some type of negative connotation, um, negative impact, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It starts from home because if they keep seeing that, then literally it, it might repeat in them and in their future relationship. Well, you know, one of the other things is abusers, they often use the children against the victim. You know, they triangulate the children against the person that's being abused. You know, they're the abuser, you know, says, see, look how, you know, your mom, your dad is behaving. You know, they're crazy. No wonder I, you know, I yell. You know, they come up with all of these excuses and reasons for being crappy human beings, right? Like, in, in my opinion, and there's no excuse for harming anyone, you know, whether that be physical or emotional, there's just no excuse. But abusers really find ways to justify the way they behave. And the children are often the ears to these excuses. And if, like I said, if the child is easily manipulated, influenced, depending on age, depending on their resiliency, because an eight-year-old can be more resilient than a 16-year-old, it doesn't really matter what age. It just matters about, you know, you know, their experience and how they personally cope. But regardless, abusers love to use the children to against the victim. And so then that that makes the victim feel even even crazier and fearful and like, what is wrong with me? You know, Mm. it's all about devaluing. Yeah. Power control, devaluing, and then the abuser validating, being justified, and 
gaining support from children, from their own children. And the thing is, is that, like I said, children want their parents to be happy. And one of the tools that an abuser uses is the love between their children. You know, it's like, if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. So you must agree with me when I say that, that, you know, she's crazy or he's crazy or, you know, it's, I mean, it's, and again, it causes, it causes confusion in the children and that is abuse. It's intimidating. You know, no child Mm -hmm. wants to disagree with their parents. Most, most kids want to please, you know, we grow up you know, wanting to please our parents and Mm -hmm. keeping them happy and being good. And, you know, even though some of us are bad, we don't like it. We didn't like getting punished, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yes. Yeah. So if for those, so right now it's kind of obvious to see why we're seeing a rise in, abuse because you know like we talked about we're all at home right right now and you know people who are already abusers because they themselves are feeling anxious and you know they're they can't control the external so they try to control what they can at home which is unfortunately by abusing even more their partners um and it's really almost impossible to, you know, get up and walk out, you know, for people who are victims. But what are the things that they can do right now in the midst of social distancing that right. can kind of give them some peace, you know? Yes. So depending on the, depending on the um, degree of violence and abuse, first and foremost, if somebody is threatening you or, you know, you're actually being beaten up, (laughs) you need to call the police. And if you have access to any type of phone or and, and any type of, because that's the other thing, abusers will steal your phone in the middle of a, of a beating. They'll, they'll take your phone, they'll hide their phone, they'll, they'll crush your phone, right? So if you can possibly call the police, call the police. Otherwise, you know, if you're, if you're isolated and you're just feeling like you need to talk to someone, there are people out there who are trained to talk to you, to make you to help you understand that this isn't because of you, because that's a, that's the thing that uh, most victims believe that it's their fault, that they're being harmed. They're being restricted and limited because they're worthless. So what I do recommend is that you call the, the domestic violence hotline. I mean, these people are trained. The advocates at the hotline are trained Many of them are survivors themselves, so they understand and they're not going to judge. That's the biggest thing. There's no judgment that's going to come from anyone who's in the position of actually advocating for survivors and um, victims. So I would highly recommend calling the hotline. Again, if you don't have access to a phone, the domestic violence hotline, their website is thehotline.org. They also have a chat feature. And they also have an escape button, meaning that if you hear somebody coming, your abuser, there is a quick, there's a button that you can select on the screen that automatically wipes, clears away your your screen so they don't know that you were on the National Domestic Hotline, you know, chatting to it with an advocate, right? So shelters are still open. There are still people in public health departments whose job it is is to, you know, um, field field these issues and help people. More and more communities have, you know, their own domestic violence division or an organization. 
So I would highly recommend if victims get an opportunity to search those for their particular state, county, or city, depending on the size of their city. Um, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate because in this period of isolation, you're even cut off from, from your normal support um, network, like your family. Like if you have siblings that live, you know, even a city over, you're not seeing them. You're not connecting with them. You know, they're not coming to visit you, you know, so you're not getting that, that comfort and outside protection from your normal support system. I mean, that is what's truly devastating about this quarantine because this was not well thought out. I do know that many companies that are experiencing an increased instance of their employees contacting their HR departments, you know, basically um, sharing what they're going through you know, living in quarantine at home with their abusers, you know, and it's causing an increase in drug and alcohol abuse. And it's only been four weeks. I don't even know what's going to happen. I'm actually scared to think about what's going to happen in the next four weeks. Because you can only, a person, a victim can only hold on for so long. That's why I highly recommend if they can to call the police, call the national domestic violence hotline, get on their website, chat with an advocate, find a resource in your community. I mean, this lockdown, this quarantine is not, there are limitations to it. If people physically need help, emotionally need help, if you are suicidal, you need to reach out to someone because it's, it's yeah. hard for, for, for victims to understand, to actually even see that they're being victimized, right? But if you're feeling crazy, if you're feeling suicidal and you feel, you feel like, you know, there's something wrong with you and you're inside a relationship that you suspect is abuse or abusive. Those are avenues where you can find out, okay, is this abuse? Even, I mean, you can even just Google, is this abuse, right? That, so what are the signs? I know abuse kind of starts very slowly, but for people who are, you know, just starting a relationship or something changes within a relationship, what are the signs that they should look out for? One of the signs that people often overlook because they think it's romantic or something is when your partner shows extreme signs of jealousy. Um, if they're jealous of, anyone you talk to, your friends, your family, if they try to devalue you and tell you that you can't do anything right, they're putting you down, they're demeaning, they shame you. The financial thing is very, very, um, is often overlooked because a lot of times women who are stay-at-home moms, for example, in abusive relationships, they're put on they're actually given money, cash. They're not given access to credit cards. They're not given access to, you know, their own bank account or checking account. They're given money and it's got to last them until the abuser gives them money again. So it's got to last for the whole week, right? So that's one thing. Like any type of controlling, demeaning language um if they if they th- if they threaten to harm your pet like if you have a dog or if they if they destroy your property if they take your phone away from you they smash your laptop over their knee if they threaten you with with, with 
not directly threaten you, but say you you're you're with someone who has guns and knives and they're always pulling them out. It's like a reminder. Hey, I've got these guns. Hey, I've got these knives. Right. It's like a it's a subtle, silent way of. Of threatening people. Mm. Also, if they. If they threaten you, if they use sex as a weapon. Or encourage you to actually partake in drugs or alcohol. Um, I mean, these are just some things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And if, uh, it, it does start subtle. It doesn't start off this way. You, and no one, none of us would ever be in abusive relationships if, if the if our abuser hit us on you know when they first met us, <laughs> or insulted right. us when they first met us, right? Right. And nothing to be ashamed of because everyone gets fooled. You know, that was one of my my biggest issues. I felt like I had been fooled. It was shameful. I couldn't admit it. I'm smart. You're smart, Paula. How could you be fooled by by this person? How could you have have pity for this person when that person, you know, is just trying to destroy your life in every way possible? And it's sad because, you know, I generally, I generally believe that the majority of humans are good people. And unfortunately, even when someone in the past has shown me that they can hurt people, I still hold out hope that they can change, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, all, that's one of the reasons why people stay in abusive relationships for too long. They see someone's potential they see someone as a human being, which is nothing wrong with that, but a human being who can change, right? We are all capable of change, but none of us can change unless we want to. Like even, for example, just look at yourself, right? How hard is it just to change your diet, just to change something that you eat? And now you're asking somebody to change the way they actually cope and interrelate with other people? No. Hope for the best for that person that they do wake up, right? But you can't hold out hope that if you stay with this person that miraculously they're just going to change and stop abusing you. And also, if you're in a relationship and you think you are unworthy of anything better, you're being fooled. We are all worthy of better. Even abusers are worthy of better, but I'm not in the business or of, of helping abusers. Honestly, I do believe in karma. I do believe that we all must, must you know, pay the consequences, face the consequences of our actions. And I, and I had this conversation a couple of days ago with someone, and I do believe that any, anyone who abuses another um, financially, physically, emotionally, deserves to pay the consequences. And then after they've actually accepted and, you know, recognized that they deserve those consequences, then they might be open to help. But for me, personally, the people I want to help and support are the victims and survivors who are anxious and ready and open to really diving in and to themselves and realizing, oh my gosh, I am worthy. Yes, I'm only human, but wow, there are so many beautiful qualities about only being human. And I definitely don't deserve to be, to live my life in a relationship in which I'm restricted, controlled, violated on all levels and not free. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I know a lot, you know, I've heard a lot of times that the reason why it's so hard to um, leave is because, you know, you're being controlled and especially financially, if you leave, then you have nothing and Mm -hmm. you're probably a stay home mom and you haven't worked for a while and it's, you know, finding a job might be nearly impossible for you. So I totally understand how that could be very difficult. But I also see that if 
you think about it while you're in the relationship. And, you know, I haven't experienced this. So this is me just speaking. Um, but thinking ahead, like having a strategy, you know, um, saving money somehow or saving your money with some other person so that your abuser doesn't have access to it. And right. just having a strategy plan also kind of um, gives you that empowerment that you are worthy. At least you know that you are planning ahead for your life and you're not just, you know, not yeah, even so thinking about yourself. Right. It's, you know, it's an quote unquote escape plan essentially. And I, and I'm speaking from experience and I can tell you that I, as a child was happier living in a cramped apartment <laughs> with a happy mother than I was in a single family home with a backyard pool with a sad and depressed mother. I was young and all that mattered to me was the safety of my mother. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people who are stay-at-home parents in abusive relationships don't think that they can leave because they think that they're going to be letting their children down. I will tell you right now, you're letting your children down by staying. And... When you do leave, ideally, you go to one of these local shelters and you talk to the advocates there and you let them know what your story is because they're going, there are a lot of counties, a lot of states and cities now have advocates that will be with you in the courthouse. They'll be with you in front of the judge when you're standing there next to your abuser, because that is the other thing that is so fear fearful for people is to actually go to be, have to stand next to their abuser and defend themselves when they're still in a tra traumatized state. They're not healed. Right. And I'm sorry, but our judicial system is, is just is another layer of trauma, not just for the actual victim, but for their children as well. And unfortunately, right now, the judicial, judicial system is, is set up so that m more often than not, an abuser, um, an abuser comes out victorious. Unless there is, a, there is a case that with, uh, of abuse and there are witnesses to that. Yeah. And... Um, it is happening more and more today that that abusers are getting convicted. And I do think, despite what's happening right now with the quarantine, I do think that the reality of the epidemic of domestic violence and how it's just as crushing to a community as any type of health viral pandemic um, may possibly end up in, in, in some laws changing around, you know, um, how domestic violence abusers are convicted and sentenced. And um, that is yeah. my hope yeah. because I mean, it, like I said, it's not just communities, it's employers now that are recognizing, Oh my gosh, we've got people that come into work every day who the night before they were subjected to some type of physical, emotional, violent act against them. Again, there's nothing to be ashamed about for being 
a victim. You are not, nobody, nobody is asking to be victimized. No one, by their very nature, should be allowed to be harmed. And unfortunately, victims are often mentally conditioned to believe that it's their fault. It is never another human's fault for being a victim of any type of crime, including domestic violence, including rape by their own spouse, including emotional abuse. And, you know, I just get really upset when I start talking about this. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's not. I, you know, it could be that you grew up that way. It could be that, you know, you saw your parents in that situation or as a child, you yourself experienced the abuse. So, uh, you know, as an adult, if that's the only thing you know, then basically you don't know any better, you know, but it's, it's good to be curious. You can, if, if you're in that situation, seek, you know, seek help, ask people, talk to people. It's like you said, it's not an okay thing. And there are so many resources out there that um, can help. And one thing I also thought about is, you know, if you're going through this, I think it's very, it would be very beneficial to record your abuse because I thought about it when you were saying that, you you know, if you go to court and you're already in a very stressed out situation, it's hard for you to, it might be hard for you to clearly explain what's going on uh, right there. So I think if you are facing an abuse, any type, I think it would be very helpful if you documented, you know, the day, the time, how it happened, probably even take pictures, but just make sure that you're storing them somewhere that your abuser cannot access. Yes, absolutely. You send them to someone as soon as you take the picture, as soon as you create the voice memo, right? You share them with someone. You don't just keep them stored on your phone. Because like I said, most people in domestic violence situations, they share cell phone plans with their abuser who has absolute complete control over their devices and their accounts and all the content that's on them. (laughs) And so, yes, record it, share it with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And memorize phone numbers as well, because these days our phones are doing it all for us. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one because yeah, (laughs) at least memorize one phone number. (laughs) If you can't memorize all of them, at least memorize one phone number. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, tell somebody that you trust. And also if we know somebody who is in an abusive relationship or, you know, any kind of abusive situation, I think now is the time to really reach out, you know, more than we would reach out to our other friends and family. I think those people really need us. And I do feel like, yes, we're all, we're all experiencing, you know, limitations, but if you are someone that is in a position to help someone who can't help themselves, now's the time to do it. Now is the time not to be afraid of getting involved, right? Because we are all involved in what's going on. And if you are in a position that you can help someone, possibly save someone's life, don't be afraid to get involved. Right. Use the the same resources as a victim would use. If If you're supporting them, reach out to the domestic violence hotline. They can also give you local resources to help you help your friend. Um, 
Yes. I mean, if you can, you do. <laughs> but sometimes, with, you know, people might also be afraid that if they do, that that might make the situation even worse. What's your thought on that? If they... So if, so if, for example, I know someone I, who is in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. and I reach out or call domestic violence hotline for them mm-hmm. or I call the police, I might be worried that I might make it worse for them because their abuser might even... Um, it might just aggravate the situation. Yes. Yes. However, if you call the domestic violence hotline, you're not calling on behalf of anybody. Like they don't take names of people. Like they don't have the identities of people. People might give them their names, but they don't record or share that type of personal identifiable information. If you call the police in the middle of an assault, that call, they can never trace that call back to whomever called the police. Um, So for example, if a victim is in the middle of, is scared, they can't call the police. And for somehow, you know, they're able to text you And they ask you to call the police. If the victim is asking you to call the police, call the police. I know that, you know, so many people are saying, oh, the police just make it worse. The police just make it worse. But right now in this situation, people can't just, they can't just dismiss the system that's in place to protect and serve us. And I do know that that many victims of, of domestic violence are going to poo-poo that statement, but it is changing. The police are getting better. Our, you know, law enforcement are getting better. You know, they're not just showing up to domestic violence cases, you know, calls alone. Many communities have police officers that are specifically trained in handling domestic violence issues, situations. They can spot a real victim and a real abuser. Things are changing. It may not be in every community, but I just want to get away from people being afraid to involve the police, especially now, especially knowing that, knowing what I know about recent cases of people calling the police and the victim actually being protected. It is happening. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, why would, why would you risk your life, the life of a friend, just because you're afraid or you suspect that involving the police is just going to make the abuser more angry? The abuser is going to be angry regardless if he gets away with it or if he doesn't. Yeah, and depending right. on the position that the abuser is in. More often than not, many abusers will deny the claim and be on really good behavior, you know, following a a domestic violence assault, accusing or arrest and accuse the victim of being the one that started it. I mean, it's, 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 there are so many psychological layers that, and you know, we can't predict how somebody is going to respond. We can't predict if the police are going to handle it well. But we can be informed of the resources that are available and use them. We have to use them. Otherwise, we're just stuck. Right. We have to be, I think the way I see it right now, we have to be very proactive. Um, we are, it's definitely made worse right now that we're stuck at home. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, if something like this were to happen again and we, they have to quarantine, the government, local, state, federal, they need to learn from this and they need to have something in place because unfortunately, 
you know, just becoming aware of the problem doesn't make the problem go away. There are going to be abusers. You know, we can't cure the abusers. We can't just socially distance ourselves from an abuser and all abusers and expect them to just disappear, right? And and not impact us. No, they're not going to go away. They're going to still be there when this is all over. And we got to deal with them. And I would love to see laws against domestic violence just a, a little bit more a little bit more severe rather than a misdemeanor they should be felonies across the board yeah but that is just my opinion yeah yeah based on what i have seen and the impacts that it has on people suicide again alcohol abuse drug abuse murder child abuse. I mean, so many crimes, so many acti- criminal activities can be related to, can, can, can be um, circled back to domestic violence. And I'm not saying that everybody that experiences domestic violence as a child grows up to experience it as an adult, either to be a victim or to be an abuser. I'm not saying that. But the likelihood that they'll fall into one or the other category is increases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people that come from so um, quote unquote great loving families end up becoming some of the most extreme abusers, some of the most extremely controlling, manipulative, fearful people who the only way that they can get power and control is by, you know, controlling their, you know, luring someone in as a partner, intimate partner, and abusing them in some way. Yeah. And, you know, we all have, you know, an issue with control, right? It's just some of us are learn to surrender and others just thrive from control. And I can see how, even though you come from, let's say a very, like a perfect happy family, but if you still have the issue of wanting to control everything, even as a child, and that has not been corrected, then yeah, it might, yeah, manifest itself into abuse. Oh, um, yes. I mean, because the the root of control is fear. If you have any type of fear, fear of the unknown, you know, fear of abandonment is a big one for abusers. The only way to keep that from happening in your life is to control someone. The only way to, you know, that's what we're taught, right? The only way to hold off a fear from becoming reality is to control a situation, right? Like, um, rather than learning how to not have fear, right? What's the opposite of fear? Love, right? It's easier incredible to believe, but it's easier for humans to fear the unknown than to embrace and love the idea of the unknown. So anything that we don't know. Say that one more time. (laughs) That was so, yes. I want you to say that one more time. (laughs) So, oh oh my goodness. If I remember... Exactly how I said it. So what's not fear? Right. So so what I said was control is an effect of fear. It's a result of fear. And what's the opposite of fear? But to love. So rather than fearing the unknown, right? We're taught to fear unknowns. What about if we were able to shift that? And embrace and fall in love with the idea of the unknown. 
And it comes back to living in the moment, right? Like, like, you know, a fear of being abandoned by a partner. That's one of the, that's a huge driver for abusers, you know, for their, for their need to control. But what if we saw relationships differently? What if we saw a relationship as, you know, beautiful and loving in the moment and there's no guarantee, like everything changes, right? But we as a society, we as human beings, we've set up systems and contracts like marriage contracts. This is a whole other conversation. But, you know, the whole idea of marriage is to is to is to relieve that fear, right, of being abandoned. That is a mechanism of marriage, unfortunately. If that person marries me, they are contractually obligated to be with me. However, even that contractual obligation still isn't enough to help people relieve that fear of being abandoned. Rather than just embracing the fact that this person is with me now, I love this person. You know, it it really comes back to how do we end this suffering that is the result of all these fears that we have around the past or the future, (laughs) right? Rather than falling in love with and being present in the now. Yeah. What we're really learning right now, I think, you know, this pandemic brings a lot of um, experiences with it, but I think that's one thing as a collective that we should, you know, take it as an opportunity to learn is that exactly to really, we're not guaranteed tomorrow we plan so much we try to control so much in our lives but it's really here to show us that actually we don't have that control so yes you know I think you you said it so perfectly um and thank you so much for you know sharing all of this with us and I think, you know, whoever really is going through abuse right now, you know, my heart goes out to them, but they do, you know, we do have a lot of resources and thank you so much for sharing everything that you told us. I do believe that we're all here to serve one another. So I want to ask you, how can my listeners and I serve you today. You shared so much with us. So, Oh my goodness. I would, I would recommend going to the national domestic violence hotline and making a donation. Yeah. The hotline.org. It's an amazing organization. I've toured their facility. Believe it or not, there's only one (laughs) They have one facility. A lot of people think that the National Domestic Violence Hotline, there's like a chapter in every city, but there's not. There's one facility. It's in Texas. And that's where the advocates are trained. It's a nonprofit. And if you can make a donation to them, that would be serving, you know, a huge cause that you know, I have a big heart for. It's beautiful. And I uh, will put a link to it also on the show notes so that everybody has that link. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much, Paula. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Wow. I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I definitely did learn a lot from Paula and what she had to say. I'm so grateful that she really opened up to us about her own experiences in domestic violence. And I'm just so grateful for her that she was willing to um, give out so much information. 
And uh, I really hope that you all got something out of this. And if you uh, really think of anybody who should be listening to this, please forward this to them. I will put in the uh, website for the hotline so that you can um, access it or share it with someone else who you think would need it. But again, thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening. And um, I hope you all stay safe at home and we will get through this. This too shall pass. That's my favorite mantra. So I know we're facing really difficult times right now. Um, so much uncertainty. But just remember, this too shall pass. And until next time, stay safe, beautiful soul. Bye-bye. <laughs>